Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the April 26, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. Well, uh, last week's first segment caused quite a stir and it showed up on Twitter. I've got a hashtag in front of my full name. That's pretty funny. But there will be more to that story and you'll know it in advance. So we'll uh, be as rigorous as always. For those of you who took issue with how I handled the show, listen to every word in my interview and then talk about whether or not I had it. So we'll let you know when we're going to do a continuous rigorous coverage of that. Now, 41 days until the primary election here in California that's going to June 7th. And I had a, a cancellation. It was pretty late yesterday that I realized. And so we'll, I hope, have that candidate on later next month. So for the second segment, the longest one, will be UCI professor Karamit Reiter and UCI director Jane Page and theater director Gavin Cameron Webb. And they are talking about their collaboration that patrons, that's you, can take in this weekend. The play's entitled COVID in Custody. It's a docudrama written by Jane and Gavin, chronicling the establishment of an online archive of firsthand stories of those held in California's prisons during the COVID pandemic. And I interviewed Kermit Ryder at length about that about a year ago. I'll give you the date at the end of the clip. The show is going to run at UCI's Little Theater this week, April 29, 30th, and May 1st. And the talkback is going to follow on April 30th at 2 p.m. So tickets are free. So you'll need to reserve them, though. It's required. So we've got that up there. The School of the Arts have this event tab where you can get COVID custody uh, for getting those registrations. So we'll be right back after station break. So welcoming you back to the show, I'd planned for my first guest to be assessor, that's Orange County assessor, the incumbent Claude Parrish, who is seeking his third term. He won his second term outright with 69% of the vote in the 2018 primary. This is why I am so insistent on covering all the down-ballot races, including the county assessor and other candidates, because the primary it could be the general election. As I've said before, if a candidate wins, 50% plus one vote. And that's the very reason I want to make sure that we heard from the incumbent, as I said, who's already served two terms. The responsibilities of that office, the assessor's office, since we don't all pass that quiz, it's very, very important to know that they have a great deal of the fiscal impacts right down to the property parcel level. That's a homeowner a renter and all whoever has to deal with what assessed values are set by the assessor's office. So it matters. Now, unfortunately, Mr. Parrish did not make himself available at the appointed hour that we too had planned to pre-record his interview. He requested a noontime appointment on yesterday, April 25th. And listeners, I've made several attempts to reach his representative 
as well as him, in order that I could bring him to you voters for your consideration. His office, not his campaign, informed me that he was on his way to an assessor's conference out of town. I reached out to him again, asking that he contact me. Why do I put this out there, you ask? You should be asking. It's important that voters see how office holders, as candidates, make themselves available and keep their commitments. I'll let you know whether he responds to fulfill his prior commitment. This is a first for me. This is a first for me. Sometimes I can winnow in a guest on short notice. This segment, though, was going to be a sort of a short one, so the order was a taller one since my guests preferred to take their time with you and with me to unpack things fully. I'll be back and get the show started. Thanks. Hey, Machi, is the fella supplier on me, Lacey? Meaning I support a water. Simple money, I guess, a power, Mitina Santan. Yasuba for putting a man, Minang, fill up the table, fill up the table, count the empty, count the empty. Welcome back to the show. My next guests are UCI professor Karamit Ryder and UCI director Jane Page and theater director Gavin Cameron Webb here to talk about their collaboration that patrons can take in this weekend, the play entitled COVID in Custody, a docudrama written by Jane and Gavin chronicling the establishment of an online archive of firsthand stories of those held in California's prisons during the COVID pandemic. I'll introduce each one of them very briefly as each has been on this show several times. Karamit Ryder is a professor with appointments at UCI's Department of Criminology, Law and Society and UCI's Law School and is founding director of Lifted, a prison education program in the UC system. Her experience of those involved in various ways with the incarcerated population, including detainees themselves during this COVID pandemic have been a central concern. She studies prisons, prisoners' rights, and the impact of prison and punishment on individuals, communities, and legal systems. We've spoken earlier about solitary confinement and now it's what COVID has wrecked upon the detainee population. Karamit's research is based on interviews, archival and legal analysis, and the data analysis documenting the history and impact of criminal justice policies. She's worked as an associate at Human Rights Watch and has testified before state and federal legislators. Her latest heavy lift is the Prison Pandemic Project. That's prisonpandemic.uci.edu, the basis for the collaboration that is today's topic. And join her in this interview about the collaboration resulting in the play COVID in Custody are Jane Page and Gavin Cameron Webb. Jane's directed Shakespeare plays all over the US and other, to other plays as well as Shakespearean plays. In addition to her professional work, Jane has taught and staged productions at universities too around the country. For Jane's extensive and enterprising innovative community projects, and academic contributions. She has been honored with many awards for her service to these campuses and communities, including Professor of the Year some several years ago. Gavin Cameron Webb is an English director who's been directing in the US and abroad for over 40 years. Some of you may have seen his production at UCI's Claire Trevor School of the Arts, Angels in America, several years ago. 
more recently has been working with refugees as they seek asylum in the US. In 2018, along with Jane Page, he began developing Asylum Anguish, a piece about the courage and resilience of these refugees. Gavin's taught at the Juilliard School, State University of New York Purchase, and Southern Methodist University. He served as artistic director for the Studio Arena in Buffalo, New York, and the Boston Shakespeare Company. Karamit comes to us today from her home in Long Beach. Jane Page and Gavin Cameron Webb from their home in Irvine, like right across the street from your host. Welcome back, all of you, to Ask a Leader. Thanks for Thank having us, Claudia. So uh, let's hear, let's do the voice test. For first is Jane. Let's hear Jane's voice. Thank you. And Karamitz. Thank you, Claudia. And Gavin. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Well, we'll start always where everybody starts with the project's origins. And I want to say, so Julia Lepton, enterprising administrator at Eliminations, walked into a bar. Well, that's one part of the origin. She saw that you three already had been undertaking the setting that we're talking about, where, and now we know that about 63,000 reported cases of COVID have been reported amongst detainees in California's prisons. And that's for folks to imagine that's double the population of UCI. I'd like for you to talk about how you did get introduced. There must have been a few sparks when you realized you were all made for this COVID in custody, this play. Tell us, talk about your first getting acquainted. Well, it's funny. I, I was able to sort of look through old emails to find the actual date. <laughs> it was November 9th, 2020, when Julia invited me to meet Karamet to talk about the pandemic project. And I, I really feel responsible as an artist to respond to what's going on in the world. And I just thought this was such an amazing resource that we would be able to sort of work with some of the specific stories in a particular class that I was teaching of advanced directing. And Karamet was so generous in terms of her opening the resources to us. So that's sort of how it started from, from my end. And likewise, I think we at Prison Pandemic were, you know, for at least a year, just functioning in kind of emergency damage control mode and trying to figure out how to share what we were doing and get more people access to it. And of, of course, I thought of, of Julia, we've had many wonderful partnerships with Illuminations from criminology and sociology. Um, and I was so excited when she introduced me to Jane because it seemed like someone who really, um, you know, immediately saw the power of these stories and also was thinking about how to how to amplify that power. I mean, I, I still remember, Jane, the first skits that some of your students did with the stories that, um, are, you know, they still haunt me. Um, so to see them brought to life that way was was really exciting. And, you know, we've been talking about it ever since. So the, the power of what Jane and Gavin were starting and producing eventually, that it was haunting to Kermit, who spent amazing amounts of person years in detention centers, and she's confronted a great deal of traumatizing and, and haunting things. So that's for her to say that now about the power of your project is saying a lot. And I everybody to take that message in. So you were going to also respond Gavin about coming together initially? Well, Claudia, I was not at all a part of this initial conversation. 
um, I came on very late to the project to aid with structure and writing. Okay, thank you, thank you. So the aspects of carceral life really came through with the urgency that Karamit and Jane are talking about that gave this project such force. I wanna, for people who aren't, um, the people outside who don't know about some of the logistics, we can talk about those logistics as you are trying to deal with the challenges of taking, of getting coverage, covering what the detainees actually are experiencing in COVID with absolutely zero protections. When outside, that's all we could think about is how to protect ourselves in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the prison pandemic in the first instance was started because we, a group of faculty and graduate students who knew about prisons were just so horrified by how little protection there was. So we actually started with an initiative to try to um, raise money to get protective equipment into the prisons because we were hearing so many stories about people not having access to masks or hand sanitizer or, you know, and of course we knew the prisons were overcrowded and people weren't able to isolate. And so the idea that in that context, while we were all sheltering at home, they didn't even have access to basic protective equipment was, was really horrifying. And um, beyond that, we also knew that they were being locked in their cells for extended periods. And maybe if they had some protected equipment, there'd be at least some opportunity to get out a little more. Um, and that was really the impetus for the project. And in the process of trying to raise that money was when we started to hear stories and think about the importance of sharing those stories. Yes, and, and, I, and I want to say that the archive itself, the documentation of all of these stories and hearing the voices of people who are incarcerated talking and, and really having a platform was just so exciting and so in inspiring. And the letters that were sent in were many just heartbreaking, but also beautifully uh, expressive of their circumstance. But, you know, sort of after using some of the pieces to create work in this class, I, I started thinking about, you know, what, what is unique as a theater maker that could help amplify and acknowledge sort of how this happened? Because um, the six founders of this archive didn't sort of wake up one morning and go, golly gee, let's create an archive. Um, and so I started really listening to all of this, the things that, you know, as academics, where you start, you write op-eds, you want to bring attention to things, realizing, well, that's not having the same kind of impact. You know, what can we do to really impact the situation? We can raise money, we can buy PPEs and sort of the accident of what happened out of that. It's all of the, the confluence of all of these things occurring that I was, I was astonished because everybody, the six founders were also all isolated in their own homes. Campus was closed, mail couldn't be delivered. And that sort of miraculously from being apart, they came together to then create an opportunity for for the archive to emerge, um, not having a clue how to do really a hotline or what kind of staff that would require or getting letters and needing to transcribe them and anonymize them. And I, I mean, it's such a complicated labor intensive commitment that was made. And I thought, you know, this is the story that I wanna make sure isn't lost 
because this story about how all of these things lined up and there is this real sense when in the interviews that I did of sort of roll up your sleeves and just get the work done. And I think that the play as sort of a docudrama of a lot of narrative, but also with particular events from inside the prisons brings out is the remarkable tenacity and determination that these six founders had and still have to make this platform available in service of others while they're in the middle of the pandemic, protecting their own families, isolated, and sort of having to figure out all the, all along the way, how the heck you do this. And that's the story that I thought I can help and Gavin and I can help uh, put, put out there for people to really understand. And, and the, we're so grateful that these six people just got busy. Well, let's name them. Naomi Suji, Associate Professor of Criminology, Law and Society. Kristen Turney, Professor of Sociology. Joanne DeCaro and Gabe Rosales, a former inmate himself, and doctoral students in criminology, law, and society, Erin Sechrist, who's uh, recently earned her bachelor's degree in psychology. So th- that they're the ones that are a part of that and are they are dramatized. I want to get back to a, an item that Jane mentioned about anonymizing each of the detainees in this theatric amplification of the case studies that the pandemic project has been amassing. So, Karamit, you can talk about the institution you know so well is the necessity of anonymizing everyone who is contributing their story. It's hugely problematic that any identifier ever stuck to them inside that institution. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I should say first in response to Jane, it's a good thing we didn't know what we were getting into. I feel like um, reflecting <laughs> with Jane has been really, you know, has been cathartic for the team and, we, and we've really appreciated that opportunity. But yeah, you know, one of the real struggles, you can imagine, Jane detailed many of them, the struggles of the project, but one of the real challenges was How do we protect people who are contributing? And interestingly, many people said they wanted, you know, we started this because people wanted to share their story. And many people said they wanted to share their names and identifying details. But we felt very strongly that in order to protect everybody, we were worried about, you know, people experiencing any kind of retaliation as a result of sharing their story with us. Uh, And we were also worried about the archive itself. We wanted to make sure that the archive could be present and withstand challenges or avoid challenges. And so for those two reasons, we we really thought carefully about how to protect people's identities. And, um, you know, if we were doing a research project, there would be a whole ethical infrastructure with which to protect identities. But this was really not a research project. We were not asking systematic questions of people in any way. We didn't have any research questions. We really were more passive in terms of just wanting to be a repository where people could put whatever story they had to share. Um, So that meant we then had to be really creative to figure out how to be protective of people. And that meant working with the librarians to think really carefully about how you protect people 
people whose um, stories are going to go more permanently in an archive, working with campus council to think about how we make sure we let people know exactly what we're going to do with their stories in a really clear and transparent way. So, but that's part of what's really exciting about this project, I think, is that we did develop these ways to collect and share stories outside of the normal avenues that gave people much more control over what they shared than we usually would be giving people as say researchers who would come in with their own questions. Well, this sort of begs the thought that we're that you need to be affiliated at some point with the oral history professionals if you aren't already, and they I'm sure they will give you a platform for your methodology. So the work that you've done, the ground you've broken has even more traction around the country because no doubt that incarcerated individuals around the country mirrored this kind of experience. Yeah, and one of the things that we, I think all on the project have been learning, Joanne DeCaro, one of our doctoral students had some background in digital humanities and oral history, but the rest of us really had less of a formal background in humanities. And so some of one of the other roadblocks or challenges we've encountered is just getting up to speed about joining the digital humanities world, starting to have conversations with those people and learn from people who are more experienced in this space, um, starting to learn how to apply for humanities grants that are more focused on archives and stories than systematic social science research. So, you know, that's a that's another way we've been we've been learning. It's been really exciting to connect with those communities. Communities, and we do hope that this will be a model, right? One of our dreams is that this becomes a framework for helping people think about how to do more work like this in other states around other prisons or other crisis moments for vulnerable populations. Yes. Well, let me reintroduce you for those who may have just joined us. My guests are UCI Director Jane Page and Theater Director Gavin Cameron Webb and UCI Criminology Law and Society Professor Karamit Ryder, who all three have been collaborating on a play to be presented this upcoming weekend. That's April 29th through May 1st at the Little Theater on UCI's campus. The play is entitled COVID in Custody. It's a docudrama written by Jane Page and Gavin Cameron Webb. The play chronicles the establishment of an online archive housing firsthand stories of those held in California's prisons during the COVID pandemic. It's free with required registration at the Illuminations, and we'll give all the details about how to get those tickets secured, but that those registrations are required. So let's, you're talking about this collaboration. So there's movement now, you're starting to have people come forward to want to get their stories. So how did you get from that? I mean, how did you introduce yourselves to the prison population in terms of we're going to dramatize what you all have been wanting to speak out about? Well, we really, we started with word of mouth, right? I mean, we we started because we had first reached out to just get a few stories of incarcerated students because we were a university and we do, all of us on the project were interested in education for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated students, including, as you mentioned, Gabriel Rosales, who's our formerly incarcerated team member. So at first, it it really was word of mouth, you know, people reaching out to us and more and more people saying they had stories to share. But then 
we wanted it to not just be a particular subset of people who knew us or knew our community. We wanted to reach as many people as possible in the prisons. And so um, we did a number of things to try to do outreach. We posted ads in news sources that go into prison. Uh, we let lawyers know and they sent letters in. But the thing that we found worked the best actually was just sending letters in to people inside. So we started looking up common last names. Um, you generally really can, with just a name, identify people incarcerated in most states and in California. Um, and so we generated common lists of last names and just started sending individualized letters to people um, with common last names across the state prison system uh, to try to let them know about the project and ask them to share with other people. We started with state prisons over the last year. We've extended that to do the same thing in jails and in immigration detention facilities. So the project has really expanded basically to all carceral facilities in the state. So I know there have been some complications with getting mail in during the pandemic. So I guess that's one of the, another challenge was getting it in there, but you didn't, could, it was not detectable that there was a jam up with even that mode of communication? Well, mail was the best, right? And this was one of the challenges we found that sometimes people couldn't even get out of their cells to call us. If they could get out, we weren't their first call. If they had any family to call, that would be All their right. first call. So letters were better than phone. You know, we thought phone would be easiest because we set up a collect line. So it was free to pe for people to call us. But it turned out letters were easier. And we did, you know, there were some facilities where all of our letters would get sent back with some excuse, uh, like the address isn't quite right or um, those people aren't here. And when 100 letters came back with the same thing, it looked like the facility was strategically rejecting our letters, but that was rare. In most cases, just a simple letter addressed to a specific individual in the prison system, handwritten by undergraduate students working with us, didn't raise any red flags and, and made it through to thousands of people. And so did you, in the letters message that you were interested in them reaching out to the person, you know, around them that didn't have those common names? So you, you like really wanted to be expansive in whom you're trying to draw in? Yeah, it was basically a very simple letter saying, hey, we have this project that's open to anyone with the address to write to us and the phone number to call and the hours of the hotline and, you know, just some basics about, you know, we are going to post your story, we're going to redact identifying information. So really, really simple. And yeah, just, you know, our sense of how prisons work is that people pass those things around, right? So the idea was convey it as simply and straightforwardly as possible, and people share those kinds of things. Thank you. Jane, you want to respond to how that, that was working in terms of what kinds of Contact, content came to you as people started answering those letters? Well, as I think it's interesting. We've tried in the play. We did a, an initial reading when we were in Colorado with some friends there, and they really um, gave us, this was in December when we were working on the, on the piece, they gave us some great feedback. And at that point, you know, we were going, is this, you know, is this, have you gotten down a rabbit hole that we're the only people interested in this, but the people that were reading were really enthusiastic about what they learned and about the story. And, um, and we, as a result, also put in a lot more pieces from the hotlines, from the voices of the people who are incarcerated in, in the play, as well as we have actors reading some specific sections of letters that were sent in it's um it's remarkable i mean many of the letters are um 
particularly the handwritten letters, because they obviously have time to, to think and revise, are extraordinary circumstances of having knowing that you're reading a letter of someone who's you know been in prison for 20, 30 years, who is now facing, you know, not knowing if they're gonna be safe in terms of COVID. Um, I think one person wrote and said they got a they got a life sentence. They didn't get a death sentence. Um, so there's those sorts of things that that really speak to us. I think in in the play and in what people expressed from being incarcerated. Did anyone have a for those that contributed to the to this? project did they did you hear maybe an additional letter later on mm -hmm. there was an update there was there's more to say I'm, I'm just wondering because we, we of the to, way COVID kept changing we had some repeat players uh, you wouldn't necessarily because we don't identify people there's no particular oh, way okay. you would know that on the website but certainly um there were people who would call every few weeks there were people who wrote a series of letters uh so we definitely um you know I think we haven't run an analysis. And again, because we strip all the identifying information, I, I couldn't say specifically. I, I think the vast majority of stories are unique, right, in terms of unique contributors. But we did have a handful of people who would who would call back or write back. And they're all in English? No. Uh, our uh, letter letting people for the know- play. For the play. Yeah. Oh, for the play. Oh, they oh, are. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And folks, uh, there will be no spoiler alerts because we're going to save all of the tremendous sort of dramatic effects and aspects that Jane and Gavin are so good at giving in their productions and seeding in there. So all of this is for listeners and patrons eventually to experience themselves there at the Little Theater. We'll give details all of it at the end here. So how about the maybe how, how did the associates on your project talk about their response to what how they felt that they were being dramatized as well uh well, when, how we my <laughs> when we had a draft of the script we sent it to uh to everyone who was participating and creating the archive to ask if it was okay no one actually said no but we have no guarantees that the script was read <laughs> so they may be absolutely outraged when they see it Why? at the end of this week. But who knows? I, I think we're all uh, very careful readers. And we, we were, I think we were, um, of course well, you are. I, won't, of course. I won't speak for my colleagues. I think, I think we were surprised that we, we didn't expect to be the focus of a story. Um, but, I, but I think we've really appreciated how open Jane and Gavin have been. And, and we've certainly... Um, yeah, we have we have certainly um, read all of it and are all I think really excited <laughs> to see what it looks like in production. So, well, like, yes, and our actors are um, so eager to meet all of you. And I have, I've also said, you know, I've never met you in a group. I've only mm -hmm. met you individually. So we're really looking forward to to seeing you this week. So that'll be on April 28th and then April 29th is the first of the um, it's the first presentation. We're going to have a talk back on Saturday between the matinee and the evening show and hope as many people from from the the real world side come in and have a conversation with the actors and Gavin and I.
and the audience. That's April 30th for people to put on their calendar, the talk back. Correct. And okay. the show runs about 45 minutes. Well, I, that's, I mean, the docudrama, you knew when this collaboration began that the, the docudrama is the genre that was going to fit. Did you, did you see that you've redefined what a docudrama is, Gavin and no. Jane? No, we just, uh, we just wrote. We didn't redefine it. Uh, we had had some experience with um, the Asylum Anguish project, which was yes. also a docudrama. So we had some familiarity in working with the form. And it's important to say, of course, that uh, all the dialogue is drawn from the interviews, the in-depth interviews that Jane did with each one of the six. So that that's where the documentary part comes in. Not sure where the drama part comes in, but anyway, it is <laughs> because of the urgency part. of the material. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll we'll be eager to hear uh, if there's another descriptor that people will have after they see it. That's just to me acknowledging that it's that it's accurate to the spoken word and it's dramatic. Well, I think it's dramatic because of what the heck happened to get the archive built. And this form has a long history in the US. So I'm going back to the living newspapers in the 1930s and, and on and on. Um, and in England too, in, uh, in Stoke-on-Trent, uh, an artistic director would, would produce local stories of his community and consequently pack the theater because they were interested in themselves. <laughs> Aren't we all? Well, and so I, I don't want to overemphasize the oral history institution, but I'm imagining that a docudrama panel or a genre of oral histories would be a really interesting sort of formalization or, or, or a, uh, an intersection of what you're doing in theater and what oral historians do in, in keeping their archives. So there, it's, it's really, yeah, I don't, I, I've been with those groups and I don't know if docudramas are, are a sort of a subset of what oral histories or an extension, I should say, of what oral histories are about. Well, well I mean, yes. What, one of the things that some of the uh, actors who are in the production have talked about is when they first, you know, sort of read it out loud, they would remember sort of what they were doing at particular points of the benchmarks of, of the statistics regarding mm -hmm. COVID and sort of going, oh my gosh, I was, you know, very busy just trying to keep my family together. And these people have just sort of taken on open arms, uh, this extraordinary task, as well as what everybody else was dealing with and being very isolated. And to that point, I'm glad you brought that up because we haven't mentioned yet the horrific occurrence that the transfer of detainees, I think it was from the Chino facility to San right. Quentin prison, and there is where the cases of COVID mushroom. It's in the under the custody of California's Department of Corrections. So we need to put that is what's going on, where the hazard was like a wildfire that spread fervently. And so I let's let's put that data point. I mean, I'm glad Dane, that that Jane brought up those markers throughout the pandemic. So you might, we did talk about this, Kermit, in your earlier interview about related project, the opening project. Mm -hmm. But so the, is, is that captured, that 
the transfer of those detainees to San Quentin? Are there San Quentin detainees in, dramatized in this? There is comment early on about two of the faculty getting message, a message or messages from someone they knew who worked in San Quentin, which told them about what the heck was going on. And I think, it, I mean, there were other, lots of other things going on, but I think the uh, proportion of that particular incident was, may, may have been the hundredth monkey, may have been the, the thing that pushed everything over the edge. I don't know. It, seem, it seems that way to me from where I'm sitting. Kermit? To the, the docudrama point, we've talked about what was going on and the responsibilities and, and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, could you speak to how Jane was talking about that data point, that development in the pandemic was, um, were there other, other sort of major developments that you saw coming through what was dramatized in this COVID in custody? Because we all can remember back, and the, mm-hmm. since there were so many different developments and responses by public agencies and public health institutions. So I don't know if there is another part of the unfolding that changed that you had to address as you're taking these voices and how this is coming through in those voices in COVID in custody. Mm. Well, I mean, there's 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 two questions. There's the what you can do in a 45 minute play that I think is focused on understanding the the genesis of of the project and how we came together in this crisis moment. Um, And that certainly includes San Quentin, which I think was highly predictable for those of us who study prisons, a highly predictable moment in the pandemic, unfortunately, that there would be bad administrative decisions that exacerbated outbreaks in really scary ways. Um, You know, I think for us as a team, I don't know that this is captured as much in, in the play. It's just one of our real challenges has been how to stop doing this collecting, right? I mean, we had planned to stop in the fall of 2021, and then there was another surge and it felt impossible to stop. So we have now, as of only a few weeks ago, stopped running the hotline, we still accept letters. But that's been, I mean, for us, I think just as we all in society have experienced the ups and downs of the pandemic, watching those ups and downs in the prisons and feeling so tied to them has been, you know, has been another layer of challenge for us and to think about how how to respond to that with the pandemic. For, and with, with prison pandemic as a project. And interestingly, you're making me think about those, the protocols outside and inside the incarcerated uh, systems, the carceral systems, the protocols were different. And so I was wondering if the presence of the availability of vaccines was not the same inside the penal institution. So I was wondering if that that they, they must have been hearing, oh, vaccines are out there. When are we going to get ours? Is that a part of any of the voices that you captured in the docudrama? No. Wow. <laughs> so that's, that's telling us a lot. Well, the, the thing, there is comments about that if people who are employed, they're not being required to have vaccinations and not choosing to get vaccinated, and how they were treated versus people who are incarcerated refusing to get a vaccination. The response sounded like, from what we heard, quite different. Yeah, we understand that, um, uh, and Karamat can correct us if we're wrong, 
that it was down to each correctional officers whether or not to get vaccinated, but mm -hmm. the people incarcerated had no choice. They had to get vaccinated. If they did not, if they refused, then they were punished for it. So there was obviously a really flagrant double standard going on there. Well, I think, you know, it's <laughs> what's what's the policy on the books and what's the reality on the ground is a challenge. Yeah, yeah. And, I think, and I think that's where the stories are so important. So, you yes. know, policy on the books, there have been attempts to require correctional officers to get vaccines, but none of them have been sustained in California. And, and so their vaccination rate is lower than the incarcerated population. And um, incarcerated folks comment on that a lot, right? The same way they comment that um, correctional staff were not wearing uh, masks as much as they should and were often the people bringing the virus into the institution. On the other hand, there has not been a mandate that incarcerated people get vaccinated. There has been, I think, in California, a, a robust effort to try to educate them and answer their questions so that they're comfortable getting vaccinated and they know that it's available. Um, I'm sure in some institutions that plays out as a pressure and, and less of an option to make a choice. At any rate, the incarcerated population has a much higher vaccination rate overall in the state than the correctional officers working in the facilities, for better or worse. And does that come through the docudrama? I mean, because we're talking about so many projects here, and I just don't know if you, uh, in 45 minutes you can't capture all of this, but I'm just wondering if that's what we can hear. Yes, you can hear that. Yes. Okay. That's that's very interesting. Well, in the time we have left together, I want to give you a chance to lay out all the details so that the listeners can see in person. I believe this is the first production that Jane has now presented in person since the beginning of the pandemic protocols. Tell us how we can see this play at Little Theater on the UCI campus. Well, thank you for, for, first of all, giving us the chance to talk about the project and uh, encourage people to come and see it. You go online to illuminations.uci.edu and scroll down to COVID in custody and link, and then you can make a reservation. As Claudia mentioned, the performances are the 29th at 7 p.m., the 30th at 2 and 7 p.m., with a talk back after the 2 o'clock, and Sunday the 1st at 2 p.m. If people have no way of getting to any of those three, we are going to be uh, probably opening the house on the 28th. And we're hoping, you know, I'm not sure if we're doing a seven or an eight o'clock that night, but if you reach out to me, I can, if, if the 28th is your only option, you can email me at janepage at uci.edu and I'll let you know what the time will be on the 28th. We hope people come and we hope that they will enjoy the story and uh, and learn something. So this is live finally. And when uh, it's live, there are audience reactions. So what do you expect? Um, maybe this is not the question to ask directors and director writers, but what um, what are you going to encourage when they read the program or when you introduce the program to the patrons that appear? Are patrons going to not know whether they should be shocked, if there's a, a little comedic relief every now and then, whether they should be sad? I mean, what, what are you thinking the patrons' responses are going to be? And are you allowing them, enabling them to, to be giving back to well, actors? One thing I want to add that we didn't mention is our, is our incredible group of actors. We have 
a faculty member from the drama department, Cynthia Bassam. We have people who are alumni of our program, Crystal Kim, Hope Anderjack, and we have two uh, current MFA actors, Vivian McCormick and Tim Frangos, and two undergrads, uh, Mario Garcia and Brianna Utri. Um, you know, you come to a play and your, your experiences will be, you know, different depending upon who you are. So I don't, I don't know that we have an anticipation. We hope, we hope people uh, enjoy it and, uh, and are really grateful for what these six people have done to create this archive. So I'm gonna just speak as, as there's a last comment here is, as I continue to go to events that are resuming after an up to two year hiatus, I think that's going to be an added exceptional ingredient for people who've been very hungry for live performance. And I imagine that will really accentuate the experience of seeing COVID in custody. Thank you, Claudia. Yes. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you, Claudia. So once again, it's such a pleasure to have all of you back this time together in this really important work. Thank you so much for your time, especially during this densely busy stretch, putting the production all together. My guests were UCI director, Jane Page, Gavin Cameron Webb, and UCI criminology law and society professor, Kermit Ryder, who've been collaborating on a play to be presented this upcoming weekend at the Little Theater, COVID in Custody, a docudrama written by Jane Page and Gavin Cameron Webb, chronicling the establishment of an online archive housing firsthand stories of those held in California's prisons during the COVID pandemic. It's free with required registration. We're recording this today, Monday, before the Tuesday broadcast. We'll be right back after a station break. And just want to refer you to the prison pandemic voices that Karamit first appeared to talk about this was on March 2221. In my archives, you can hear the whole show. Since I've got a little time, let's go over the voter registration and some of the, the details there. So before the dateline, the Orange County Registrar of Voters is hiring folks to staff all of those facilities around all the election infrastructure. So you can go find out those details with ocvote.gov forward slash about forward slash careers. So for the dateline now from the Orange County Registrar Voters that this week on April 28th, the state voter guides will be mailed out to WE voters. And you already received, I believe last week, your voting card that has a brief overview of our voting options. And that should give us, it'll give us the state voter guide, but there will be a local voter guide. I did not see that on the timeline. Let's talk. Let's support our new registrar voters that took Neil Kelly's place. May 23rd is the last day to register to vote. The voter registration form should be mailed and postmarked by this date, May 23rd. Or you can deliver this to the county elections official by this date and it's effective. Boom. Right when they receive it. May 24th through June 7th 
is when the conditional voter period is taking place. And during this 14-day period, prior to Election Day and including Election Day, you can go to the office of your county to the election official to conditionally register to vote and vote on a provisional ballot. It will be counted. It's just a conditional one because you registered after the May 23rd deadline. May 28th is when the voter centers open. And I'm going to, let's see, let's back up here. May 9th is the vote by mail will begin to be processed. They're going to start to drop. So around May 9th, start watching in your mailbox what you got there. So after that, we have additional, June 4th, additional vote centers will open. So May 28th, some will open and a few more on June 4th. And June 7th, the vote center will open from on Election Day everywhere at 7 a.m. It will close at 8 p.m. And if you're in line at 8 o'clock at night, stay there because you'll be able to stay, remain there and you will be able to vote. But you have to be in line at 8 o'clock. I've seen where physically an election worker will sort of mark that person, say, okay, this is it. Everybody here forward is going to be able to vote. So it's official. It's It's made very formal. I will be interviewing candidates past the voter ballot drop of May 9th. I'll continue all the way through. I'm actually going to have on one of the challengers to our incumbent congresswoman. I will have him on the May 31st. Scott Bob's going to be on, but that's just a little scoop for all you. So you want to be able to, you want to hang on your ballot till you get as many candidate interviews as possible. And if you want to participate in my Ask a Voter show, You've got to email me, so I know you want to be on, and you let me know how to reach you, and email me at c-s-h-a-m-b-a-u-g-h, c-shamba at k-u-c-i dot org, and I'll put you on my live show. I've gotten some real nuggets, so you could be one of those. Everyone needs to be sure to vote and vote down ticket. And my only advice I'll ever offer on this platform at the radio station is if you aren't familiar with a candidate or a measure, ask someone whom you trust to help you out. Attending forums is quite beneficial. Last night, Ocord hosted a forum for district attorney candidates. Everyone but the incumbent attended, and I always find forums very informing that you learn about their motivations, their priorities, their comportment. Last night, the comportment itself was a whole study between the three district attorney challenging candidates. So I really endorse that you attend them. And this one I attended virtually, remotely. So I uh, had the benefit of watching quite a bit without ever leaving my home so I could continue working on my notes today for the show. So uh, you do learn a lot. I guarantee it. If you don't, I'll I'll uh, I'll give you um, a, a a little deposit in your savings account. OrangeCountyVote.gov is where you can always get more information. You can not only the the timeline for when certain deadlines are occurring, but you can also follow when they refresh the voting results on the election day, starting at eight p.m. Because none of the ballots. They're handled, but they're not 
the counting doesn't start until after 8 p.m. on the election day, June 7th. So if you hang out at the orangecountyvote.gov, you will find out quite a bit. It's good to get sort of familiar with it because it's not always that super intuitive how to go from tab to tab. And so there right now you can see every single office, all the candidates that properly filed to run all the way from the federal offices to the, the local. And there are a lot of judicial offices that are on there. So the other way to follow this institution is to follow their Twitter handle, at OC Registrar. And that's where I found out about their just let, reminding us that those cards went out. So, or no, that they're hiring. That's where I found out that. So uh, that's my wrap for a next week's show, the 47th Congressional District Republican candidate, Errol Weber, challenging incumbent Congresswoman Katie Porter, will be on. And in the second portion of the show, I'm going to have Connor Everts back, my water analyst activist, uh, brain trust member, will speak in advance of the Poseidon Desalination Project being considered before the California Coastal Commission. They've already been before the Water Control Board gave the approval, but there's issues, folks. There's lots and lots of issues. They haven't gone away just because the Control Board decided that bare majority decided they'd give it the approval. So May 12th is when the California Coastal Commission will hear the Poseidon Desal Project proposal and so that will be down here at Huntington Beach. I'll give you those particulars when I have Connor Everts on next week. And so I think the one thing I want to school everybody on, because I'm into schooling, right, is that every time when the matter of a cost is raised, something that could cost something, there could be some some fiscal impact, I want you to wait for the moment where it's explained who assumes that liability? It's a big deal because I know from following the Poseidon project, counter, the comparable project that was approved in the Carlsbad area, that when the Poseidon portfolio, they figured out, it's sort of like their alpha test, what kinds of costs were incurred in that project. And they're immense, folks, that those costs were, those liabilities were removed from the private side. They're now assumed by the public side, the ratepayers, the regional and the state agencies that have to assume those costs. So every time a cost is raised, pay attention to that. In today's Los Angeles Times, Ian James maps out where we are at this moment. I recommend people look for it. And of course, I want you to support local newspapers. So get past the paywall, give a little contribution. And you can read his whole article about what critics have to say about the Poseidon desal plant. So thank you for listening, everyone. Talk with you next week.